This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. God, you are most magnificent and holy. During these uncertain times, I thank you that we have your certain and sure word that has been handed down to believers thousands of years ago and the church has trusted in for encouragement and support, for illumination, God, to give us peace. Bring us a word now, we pray, of peace and hope and of joy, of instruction and of exhortation from the word of God. I pray for my words. God, I believe the things that you have had me prepare are for the people who will watch this. And God, I pray that you will give me strength now as we turn our attention to these things. You are indeed great and glorious. If I say anything that's not of you, it would just be good enough to wipe that away from our memory. We only want to take what you have for us from this time. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. When we started planning these sermons eight months ago or so, there is no way I could have known that I would be preaching to you today exclusively over the internet. We knew that we would stream sometimes, we knew that we had that capability, but never did we think this would be the only way that we would access these together. But folks, God is so good and faithful to us that even in our planning many months ago, we find ourselves with something from His Word to encourage us and give us hope, and to apply to our lives today. I mean, who would have thought that the book of Nehemiah, a book about building a city, about building a community, would have been a providential book for us to look at and walk through as we're apart and in facing so many uncertainties. Yet, here we are again, Just like last week where some things were ironic, but in the mercy of God this week again, these verses have so much to teach us. So let us pay attention for this is the word of God. Last week in Nehemiah 8, we started by saying the first words are all the people were gathered together. That is about the funniest way I could think of to begin this sort of at least temporarily new normal for us as a church. But the reason the people were gathered is what's important. They were brought together to hear the word of God read over them, for God's word to be proclaimed to them. We saw last week that their first reaction was grief. They were grieved at their own disobedience and as their sin was laid out sort of before them to see and to mourn over. But their leaders wanted to make sure that it wasn't grief that they left with when the word of God was read over the people, because when the word of God is read, it does not ultimately and finally bring condemnation. It says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word of God is meant to bring rejoicing to his people. And so, even though they saw that their sins were many, they could see that the grace of God abounds. 
And folks, the grace of God does abound. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5. That the law was given so that the people could see their sin, that their sin was brought to light. But it shows how grace abounds all the more. Think about that. Even when we see our sin, if we're in Christ, we see even more of the grace of God. Praise be to his name. This week, we're going to look at another helpful practice that fuels worship. Another helpful practice that fuels worship. The first day that the law was read, all the people are gathered there, and then on the second day that the law is read, in particular, the fathers and the heads of the families come together as they read the book of God. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 8, starting at verse 13. Nehemiah 8, 13. It says there that on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel shall dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now on that second day, when the fathers and the heads of the houses gathered together, they are reading Leviticus 23. It's describing the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Our Jewish friends call it Sukkot. It's the festival at the end of the fall harvest. People would come together to celebrate God's provision from the previous season, and then they would also ask him for a good rainy season coming up, which would start shortly after the feast. The primary reason, though, for the Feast of Booths is to remember their wilderness journey. When God brought the people out of Egypt, before they entered the promised land of Canaan, they wandered in the desert, living in tents, or again, tabernacles or booths. God did not want them to forget this time, their wandering years. So for a week, Every year, God provided for them and put into the law, the book of the law, that they should start 
The process of they should harvest and then they should come and thank God for his provision of the previous year and before they planted and began getting ready for another season of growing, that they should make time, have an intentional celebration, a festival to remember these things. And so part of that was they would set up these tents and they would decorate them with tree branches and fruits native to their land. And they would live in them. They would stay in them for a week. Changing our physical surroundings has a way, does it not, do we not realize now, of changing our perspective. So they would do this for a week, a year, or at least it was commanded, but it had fallen out of practice with the people. Now most of us are staying in our houses all the time. Even staying in your house way more than normal, even if you're going to work, even if you're doing a few other things, you are staying home a lot, probably more than ever. So what a time, providentially, for us to talk about what is temporary and what is eternal. Where we are staying for a short time versus where we are meant to stay forever. When it comes to things that are temporary and eternal, God does two things. Sometimes he uses what is temporary to teach us about what is eternal. And other times he draws a sharp distinction between the temporary and eternal, the things that don't last and the things that will last forever to show us how great their disparity is. So sometimes he's using temporal things to show us what eternal realities will be like. He calls them shadows. These are a shadow of permanent forever things. And then he sometimes says, there are things that are temporary and they're so different and so broken and so much less than what is forever that you can't but help to see that disparity, that difference. In the Feast of Booths, we see him doing both of those things, acting in both of those ways. Sometimes things are shown to the people so that we can see a little bit of forever with what is given to us now. And other times, we can see that what we have now is nothing compared to what we are going to receive forever. And so I want to point out three works of God that this points us to. First, we see in the Feast of Booths that God provides. Second, we see that he guides. God guides. And third, God delivers. God provides, guides, and delivers. So first, how does God provide? Again, the, the most immediate context for the Feast of Booths was that God had just provided the harvest. The grapes and the olives were among the last things to be ready from the fall harvest. Today, uh, Jews would celebrate this or would recognize it if they are celebrating it at the end, or that rather the beginning of October. Now, we're probably thinking about the most basic provisions right now that we usually take for granted, aren't we? I mean, I've never thought about toilet paper so much in the last two weeks as I ever have in the entirety of my life combined up until this point. But if we're honest, as Americans especially, we don't think about our most basic provisions all that much. And in comparison to the last two weeks, we probably hardly ever think about them. But these last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about them a great deal. We mostly, and up until these last couple of weeks, have eaten the food, not this that we have, but that we 
want. It's provided for us. The most basic provisions of our life are plentiful for us. And that's a little bit different now. I've been to the store, and I haven't been able to get everything that I would like. But it's important, folks, that we don't lose sight of the fact that we still have plenty of food. Our provisions are still plenty. This is the grace and the mercy of God. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says that we don't deserve even basic provision, but God is so kind to give it to you and to me. And so, in one level, as we see, God provides. The Feast of Booths shows us that God provides for his people, even in the midst of having a a small degree less. And folks, let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who deal with these realities every day, and now we'll begin to deal with them even more. But even in the midst of having a, a small degree less, God has still promises and has provided all that we need. When the Apostle Paul talks about the most basics of provisions, he just says, walk it backwards. If you start walking it backwards, what do you get? He takes the example of bread. Where do you get bread? Well, you'd say, I, I bought it. I went to the store and I picked it up. Well, yeah, yeah, but how was it made, Paul says. And you would say, well, you know, somebody made it. Somebody baked it. Right, but, but how did they do that? Well, they mixed up the ingredients. Well, sure, but, but where did the ingredients come from? I don't know, people grew them. Okay, but what about the seed planted in the ground, watered from the rain? The Apostle Paul's point is that God has provided all we need. Even when we feel like we just go pick it up. Even when we feel like it's there on the shelf. It is all ultimately from the hand of God. And Jesus said that God will give us what we need. So we don't have to worry about that. This may be among the most poignant times in any of our lives to think through even how the most basic of provisions are taken for granted. But let's not waste this. Let's thank God that he provides. All that we have is from his hand. He is the good giver of gifts. So let's not waste this chance to praise him for the things even that we take often for granted. So God provides. Number two, God guides Now, the feast, again, was meant to remind Israel of their journey through the wilderness. We've been talking about that at home. Our family has this week. Lots of people have been asking themselves, asking each other. I've heard people ask me. They're probably asking God as well. I hope you're asking God. That's what you should be doing. When does this end? That's what we're asking each other. That's what we're asking ourselves When does this end? How does this end? Those are some of the same questions that the Israelites were asking as they wandered in the wilderness for an entire generation. And God primarily answers that question. Not by giving them a date or a year, but he answers that question by telling the people to trust 
How does this end? Trust me. When will we be done? You must hope and put your faith in me. And not only does he say you should do that, but he shows himself, and he did it in the wilderness, he shows himself to be trustworthy. And again, this is grace. God could have said, trust me, what have you got to lose? Where else do you have to go? And that's one fine tactic to take. He could have said, trust me, you have no other choice. But it says, he says, trust me, and then he demonstrates power. If you go back and read the account of how the Israelites came out of Egypt into the wilderness, he does it over Pharaoh. He does it when he parts the Red Sea. He does things incredible, miraculous for them as they go through the wilderness to provide for them. And God continues to keep his covenant with them even when the people wander continually breaking it over and over again. The people distrust God. They disobey him. And all he does is just tell them to wait a little bit. We make life-altering mistakes. We make mistakes that should deserve death. And all God tells his people to do is wait a little bit, have a little bit of a time out. That's all he does in the wilderness. But he never leaves them. He never even grows angry. He just simply is a father who guides and disciplines and instructs. He's good, even when we're not. I've had people ask me, where is God and what is he doing? I can only answer that. I've been asking that as well. But I can only ask, answer that how the Bible does. By saying that in the specifics, I don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but that's not the point. I know, and this is the greater point, that he will always stay with us and he will give us everything that we need. That's how we guide, by saying, I'm with you in this. And so how do we follow God in these days? How do we follow God in these odd, odd days? Number one, we follow him as the sovereign Lord that he is. We pray and we trust and we hope in him. And second, we follow him recognizing that the way that God most often leads is not by telling us the whole plan or even many aspects of it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. God led the people out of Egypt in a miraculous way. But he didn't tell them all that he was going to do to get them to the promised land. In fact, if he had, I'm sure that some people, lots of people, wouldn't even have believed him. He would have said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you out of here. I'll lead you with a pillar of fire. The army, the biggest army in the world, will pursue you. And when they will get close, I'll push back a massive body of water. You'll head down into it. They'll follow you. As they close in, I will muddy up the wheels of their chariots. And the second you're out of the water, I will bring that water back down upon them. Now, they knew God was taking them to the promised land that their ancestors had followed. But he didn't tell them the way. 
And it's probably a good thing, because I'm not sure they would have ventured out if they knew what was going to happen. God guides. Folks, he doesn't tell us all or even many aspects of the plan, but we can know that he's good, that he'll never leave, and we can follow him, trusting that he's with us in it. So he provides, he guides, and finally, God delivers the plan for the Feast of Booths was to take a week a year to move out of their permanent homes and into temporary ones, right? And the point, again, was to remind the people that not only did they once live in temporary homes in the wilderness, the point was to remind them that they still did. And the point is to remind us today that we still do. I don't know if my house has ever felt as permanent as it does today, yet so temporary all at the same time. I like my house. I'm grateful for my house. But man, do I want to leave my house a lot more than I felt like I ever had before? (coughs) I mean, are you feeling that too? Usually I love to be home. Now it's like we have to get out of this house. This world is not our permanent home. The places that we are living are temporary. The bodies we inhabit are not eternal. In a sense, we're all living in booths. It's so easy to be comfortable there. It's it's all we know. But this world is not home forever. It's not suited to us. And we're not ultimately suited to it. Our souls were made for more. And one day, God promises that we will shed these mortal bodies and we will be transformed. Did you know that the the part of the glorification that the Bible promises is not just a new place to live, but a glorified body? A new body you'll be given. (coughs) And so then how does God deliver? How does he deliver? Let me just read you a couple of verses. John 1.14. This is so good as we look at tabernacling in these booths, these tents. John 1.14 says something incredible. It says, in the word, and if you look in your Bible, it's capitalized. Because it means a specific person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word dwelt there. And the Word became flesh and dwelt. It's the Greek word skeneo. It literally means to tabernacle or to tent. God delivers us by coming himself to tabernacle, to booth among us. He entered into our world, making it his temporary home so that he could purchase the right to bring us into his eternal kingdom. And that happens when we believe in him, Jesus tabernacled among us. 
so that we might be saved. And this celebration of Sukkot is not just mentioned in the Old Testament. They were actually still celebrating this in the lifetime of Jesus. A later addition to this celebration was a water-pouring ceremony. They would draw water from a pool, and they would pour it into a basin near the altar at the temple. It was done that way to remind people of when God gave them water, which is obviously so crucial to maintaining life. They were wandering in the desert, and they had no water, and God miraculously gave them water. And so they began to draw water out of a pool, a specific pool, and they'd pour it into a basin near the altar in the temple. And when Jesus was at this very ceremony, and the priest had drawn the water, listen to what he said in John 7, this is verses 7, 37 and 38, John 7, 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast of booths, of tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For yet, as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Like the Israelites needed water in the desert, and God gave it to them. Jesus was saying that we are all like people in a desert without water. The desert is the world, and the water is spiritual life. We need it, and there's no place else to get it. If we come to Jesus to quench our thirst, not for water, Remember, this is one of those times where God uses shadows of things in this world to teach us true spiritual realities that we can't yet see. So if we come to Jesus asking for spiritual life, he will supply all that we need for the rest of our lives here and forever in the world to come. He will make you a child of God. He will make you a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he will make you an heir to his kingdom. This world is not our home. Some things teach us that as shadows of future realities, we can learn a little bit from what we see here about them in the future. And some things show us that in such obvious ways, this isn't the place we're ultimately meant to be. The past couple of weeks, I think we've seen God teach us that in both ways. So let's not miss these opportunities to learn. He provides, he guides, and he delivers by tabernacling, coming to live in our world temporarily so that we can live with him forever. Come to him for spiritual water, for, for life, spiritual life, like water as one in a desert. He's the only place to get it, and he gives it to every single person who comes to him and asks. May we know him as the only true God 
the only source of eternal life, the only one who has come to be with us so that we can go to be with him forever. Would you pray with me? God, may your name be praised as holy. Thank you that you sent your one and only son to tabernacle among us. So that, that was a te- so that we could see that this place is like a temporary home, but we are destined, meant for one through Jesus Christ, so much greater. Thank you that you made the way for that through your son, and that anybody who comes to him could have everlasting life. I pray for everybody who watches this. Boldly, God, that they would come to Jesus for everlasting life. And that they would know that you are a God who provides for them who guides them, never leaving them, and who will deliver them when they call out on the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.